0: So, today, what are we waiting for? The Christian tradition of Advent is a time of waiting, often with very high expectations, as Nina mentioned, for the promised potential rewards of Christmas. Whether you've sat on, on Santa's lap or not, you have your desires, your wishes about what would happen for Christmas. Nina and I remember our long efforts to keep our son healthy, despite his yearning to do things that were really beyond his capacity. When he was four, he wanted his own pocket knife. We asked him to wait until he was eight. But his uncle responded to his precocious interest and taught him to whittle when he was six and gave him a knife. There were lots of cuts, but he eventually did learn to be responsible to leave his knife at home, not take it to school. He watched Olympic swimming, and he thought that moving his arms was swimming, so he dived into the pool at five without any fear and sank like a stone. As a young teen, he raised objections to restrictions like curfews. so we told him that after his 18th birthday, he could make his own decisions, but until then, we were responsible for him, and so we might make a lot of those decisions. When he reached 18, he said he understood better. When he reached 21, he actually thanked Nina for caring enough to set boundaries and hold him accountable. But he couldn't help wanting what he wanted, and it was always hard to wait. As far as Advent and waiting for Christmas, we decided, I think, when he was three or four, that it wasn't really worth holding him off for Christmas morning or Christmas uh, Eve to get us some presents. And luckily, he was enrolled in the Jewish Community Center preschool. So we started the practice of, of, um, of practicing Hanukkah. So we could give him presents for eight days, little presents for eight days. And then we gave him another set of presents on Christmas Eve. Has anybody else tried that? Just to, to, you know, to ward off that anxiety that kept building until Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. When I was six or seven years old, I watched the kids' TV shows and saw commercials for the Daisy Air Rifle. Not only did I write a note to Santa asking for that one present, but for weeks I made sure to mention it in my bedtime prayer to the God that I fervently believed in. And then I waited. And Christmas morning under that tree, there was no Daisy Air Rifle. A crisis of theological proportions. I had to deal with my disillusionment and disappointment about what it meant to ask for a Christmas present to Santa or to God. Three weeks ago, many of us had to deal with a much deeper sense of disappointment and disillusionment because eight years ago, we successfully elected a president who offered the kind of idealism that many of us embrace fully in the sense that it might really be possible to suspend our disbelief and our cynicism, and even expect that it would be possible that the song We Will Overcome could be achieved in our lifetime, that racism and classism could be dissolved, that the greater view of how to deal with the important problems of our time could be achieved. The election process this past year was a definite contrast to that for most of us in this room. We had to reconcile our hopes and prayers and projections of how our leaders and our society should reflect our most deeply felt values and priorities. And that was before Election Day. A few days ago, I put together a Thanksgiving letter and I wrote these words and decided that it really wasn't appropriate to send it. Because a lot of us were hurting too much it was not going to be sufficient to address our issues. And here's how I wrote it. These past few weeks have been extra difficult for many of us for various reasons. Much of our attention and energies became focused on national issues on top of our usual daily stuff, work expectation, ordinary family concerns, dealing with minor illnesses or coping with treatment and healing from major diseases, which are too often becoming commonplace among all of us. In short, as our friend Mel has expressed it recently, even before the election, we were sick and tired. And now we're really sick and tired for a lot of reasons. Our church community and Nina and I have not been immune to any of these factors, to say the least. The campaigns and the conventional poll predictions for many of us raised our hopes and expectations for an outcome somewhat different from what we experienced on the hours and days after midnight of Election Day. This reality is difficult for some of us to welcome or even accept. How do we cope and get well now? In learning the basic practices of nonviolent or compassionate communication, Nina and I have been taught that the identification and ownership of our own feelings can be a first step in self-awareness and movement toward healthy relationship with others, especially with those with whom we disagree. And here are ours. We felt and are still feeling a range of emotions, beginning with disappointment and sadness, through frustration and anger, from anxiety to emptiness and to even to moments of despair. Your own reactions to the election might be particularly important to acknowledge for your psychological well-being, your health. Did the election go the way you expected or hoped? Are you OK with the results, perhaps relieved or even pleased? Are you worried about the implications, even if you were on the winning side? Or are you in denial and enraged? Your answers to these kinds of rhetorical questions may be indicators of your present emotional state. But how we deal with our feelings may help us move forward constructively toward wholeness or not. Important action questions you might ask yourself. What can we do? What should we do? What will I do to resolve my inner turmoil. Do you plan to get tickets to the inaugural balls or apply for an appointment in the new administration? Do you plan to resign your position? Are you preparing yourself for strategic redirection, privatization, or downsizing in your present job? Are you working for Halliburton? Are you practicing wait and see suspension of judgment or duck and cover techniques? Are you making plans to immigrate? Why? Do you prefer Canada, Mexico, Europe, Mars, or somewhere else? Do you want to be part of organized support for positive policies, whether they happen to be coincident with the Trump policies, or will you be identifying with polarized opposition against policies with, with perceived negative outcomes for the future? will you plan to participate in the inaugural parade on January 20 or on the January 21st women's march on the district of columbia or further actions that may follow that or precede that it's all about what how we deal with our anticipation and for some of us disappointment frustration anger a lot of emotions can come up because of our anticipation of what was going to happen and our anticipation of what is still going to happen. Our life's journeys always include an element of anticipation, which can be destructive of our psychological well-being. The German poet Rainier Maria Rilke sensed this deep truth that we are impatient about living day to day because we want immediate, clear answers. Sometimes, even if we don't like those answers, we want to know what they're going to be. Rilke wrote about that impatient waiting. He says, live your questions in the present now. Perhaps someday far into the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answers that you are seeking. In other words, life unfolds in ways we really can't predict. My colleague, Shelley Page, who's a minister in Iowa, writes that her practical advice for making the time of waiting, anticipation, more productive rather than passive as a time of growth and insight is to try to be more intentional and focused on the reality of our present circumstances using three key concepts. First, to try to be perceptive, to look outside the conventional patterns to more truly understand what is existing in the present. Whether those be patterns of oppression or patterns of freedom. Second, she says we should be concept to try to brainstorm and find new ways to collaborate with others who share our values. Whether it takes of our giving of our energy, our resources or our time to the causes that we can share. Third, to be receptive, to open ourselves, to learn the truth about those who are oppressed by current policies or by future policies, to see the reality from their perspective and accept both the burdens and the gifts which can emerge from that knowledge, that understanding, that true compassion. And this is for people who are in opposition to us as well as the people who are in sympathy with our values. In the unsettled and disruptive environment we are now living in, most of us can benefit from those three, what I call, B attitudes, being perceptive, being conceptive, and being receptive, to roll up our own sleeves to support and work alongside the communities of those who are marginalized and threatened, to boldly and bravely address the oppression and injustice in society, to imagine a different future, but to be in active communication and linkage with those who are, shall we say, of a different persuasion. This coming Thursday, for example, faith leaders from throughout Loudoun County will be gathering under the sponsorship of the local interfaith clergy group and the Bridges organization. This, these two groups have come together in hope to develop a systematic action plan for addressing the potential for threats against immigrants and Muslims articulated by members and allies of the incoming federal administration. We are also concerned about how the police power will be exercised either to protect or to oppress black communities. How might that happen? At a recent meeting, I suggested that active collaboration with the Loudoun NAACP could be envisioned, to plan, publicize, and implement the annual MLK Day Parade in the week of the inauguration of the President. That might be one effective strategy for raising public cons- consciousness. We are now aware that the same week, the day after the inauguration, the plan's women's march at the Capitol may also be an important, important marker for those who feel that they need to be engaged in active struggle or support of different policies than the ones that the administration brings forth, But these are just the beginning steps for what is likely to be a long and arduous journey. Some of us are aware that uh, in the days, in the weeks following the election, somebody came up with the idea to use a safety pin as an active marker of support for those who may be oppressed, be they immigrants, be they Muslims, be they uh, members of the, of the oppressed black community. But we understand that it's a complex decision to wear a safety pin as more than an empty gesture. We understand from reading that this safety pin was actually adopted by those who were trying to stay within the European community in the vote in Britain, which actually went adverse to that position. Now we understand a different meaning for the safety pin, to stand alongside those who are threatened, to understand that we may be called upon to defend those whose rights may be infringed. What would you decide if you understood that it was more than just a gesture, that it was a communication that you are in support and will defend someone that you are in in the immediate environs of their being oppressed, or that you are perhaps in sympathy with the um, uh, efforts that Natalie was talking about to avoid the invasion of the water rights of the native peoples of the the Dakotas. What will you do? I found a, a letter from a Native American woman, who writes about what's involved with that Dakota protest on the pipeline. She writes among a much longer letter, it is crucial that people recognize that Standing Rock is part of an ongoing struggle against colonial violence. It's a front of the struggle and a long war against native peoples, a war that has been active since first contact and continuously waged without interruption. Their efforts to survive conditions of this anti-Native society have gone largely unnoticed because white supremacy is the law of the land and because Native people have been pushed beyond the limits of public consciousness. We didn't even think about them for a long time until something like this comes up. The fact that Natives are more likely to be killed by law enforcement than any other group. Wow, I never even thought of that. It's more than Black Lives Matter. It's about them, too. Native erasure is an ubiquitous cultural and literal program pushed from public view. Their struggles intersect with numerous others, but are perpetrated with different motives and intentions. Anti-black violence is publicly performed for the sake of social and economic control, she says whereas the violence against Natives has actually had one pragmatic aim, the total erasure of the culture as identifiable communities. Wow, 400 years of oppression of Native communities. The struggle at Standing Rock is an effort to prevent the construction of a deadly destructive mechanism created by greed-driven people with no regard for Native lives. It has always been this way, she says. They die and have died for the sake of expansion and white wealth and for the maintenance of both. If you bring yourself to a consciousness about that position, how could we allow that to happen? It's because we've always allowed that to happen. It's just what we expect. They have always been in their communities fighting for their culture and. Surviving colonization, that reality is rarely acknowledged. Even people who believe in freedom frequently overlook these kinds of issues and the intersections of their issues with ours. It matters that more of the world is bearing witness in this particular moment, but the dialogue around the pipeline has become extremely climate-oriented. There is an undeniable connect between this front of struggle and the larger fight to combat climate change. All of humanity is at risk of extinction, whether they realize it or not. But this commonality does not mean focusing exclusively on the intersections of those interests. Taking a journey well outside the bounds of those intersections is also required. Too few people have started from a place of naming that natives have a right to defend their water and their lives simply because they have a natural right to defend themselves and their communities. When climate justice in the broad sense becomes the center of conversation, the fronts of struggle are reduced to a staging ground for the message of non-governmental organizations. Yes, everyone should be talking about climate change, she says, but all of us should be also be talking about the fact that Native communities deserve to survive because their lives are also worth defending not simply because this affects everyone. So if you talk about Standing Rock, her final paragraph, begin by acknowledging that this pipeline was redirected from an area where it was most likely to impact Bismarck, North Dakota, mostly white community. Please remind people that our people, the natives, are struggling to survive the violence of colonization on many fronts, and people shouldn't simply engage with such stories when they see a concrete connection to their own issues or as a jumping off a point to discuss climate change. Friends, allies and accomplices should be fighting alongside the natives because they value native humanity and native right to live. In addition to whatever else they are believing in and demonstrating for what a broadening and focus of what a safety pin or a demonstration or contributing to those who were standing at Standing Rock. 50 Unitarian Universalists were among 500 three or four weeks ago. 50 Unitarian Universalist ministers responded to a call from their colleague to show up, to be present. As the snows have fallen and the winds come up and the temperatures drop, they're still... I understand thousand people at least there in tents with their little wood or Coleman stoves. And tomorrow is supposed to be a big confrontation with the, um, with the security forces, with the sheriff's people. It's a big deal to those folks up there. And if you were to choose to wear a safety pad, What would it mean to you? What would it mean to you if you're in the metro, for example, and somebody comes in and harasses a woman wearing a hijab? What what do you think you would do to help defend that person? Do you confront the person who's who's being aggressive or do you go to the side of the woman who's being um, attacked and be in communication with her? That's what's been suggested in the online materials that I've seen. It's a very complicated thing. But here's a little simple thing. When I wear this safety pin, that means you are safe with me and I will stand beside you. That's a simple thing. But it's more than that, too. You have to decide how much you're willing to risk and whether you are going to be available to bring in other people who aren't wearing safety pins, but can be with the struggle to defend those who are being oppressed. I understand that this is a politically volatile time and a moral question time about a lot of issues. The defense of the pipeline is just one of hundreds of particular issues that we could be involved with as individuals or as a collective. But you have to make your decisions. You have to understand what you are risking, what your, your actual engagement means to you. I found a particular poem that I would like to share with you as we run out of time now. It's um, a poem from June Jordan from 1978, presented at the United Nations in memory of the 40,000 women and children who in 1956 presented themselves in protest in the capital of apartheid in South Africa. Here's how it goes. Our own shadows disappear as the feet of thousands by the tens of thousands pound the fallow land into new dust that rising like a marvelous pollen will be fertile even as the first woman whispering imagination to the trees around her made or righteous fruit from such deliberate defense of life as no other still will claim inferior to any other safety in the world. Safety. The whispers, too, they intimate to the innermost ear of every spirit. Now arise, they carousing in ferocious affirmation of all peaceable and loving amplitude around a certainly unbounded heat from a baptismal smoke where, yes, there will be fire, and the babies cease alarm as mothers raising arms and heart high, as the stars so far unseen nevertheless hurl into the universe a moving force, irreversible as light years traveling to the open eye. And who will join this standing up? And the ones who stood without sweet company will sing and sing back into the mountains, and if necessary, even under the sea. The closing line, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. At our minister's gathering at General Assembly several years ago, we were privileged to have Dr. Issei Barnwell of Sweet Honey in the Rock teach us a chant using those words. And I would invite you to sound out these words with me. We are the ones, we are the ones, we've been waiting We are the ones, we are the ones we've been waiting. We are the ones, we are the ones we've been waiting. And then the the complimentary high, high notes for that. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And then under that, the bass line. We are the ones, we are the ones, we've been waiting. We are the ones, we are the ones, we've been waiting. Add the high notes. We are the ones, we are the ones, we've been waiting. We are the ones we've been waiting for. 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 for. We are the ones we've been waiting for. That's enough for now. (laughs) This has been a day of experimenting with sounds. But you get the point. What are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? I submit to you that this is a time when we can make decisions about whether we will wait or whether we will use our individual and collective power to reclaim our power, to understand that it is our country. It is our world and it is our responsibility to be in alliance with those with whom we agree in communication, in dialogue with whom, with those whom we disagree. It is a profound, safety pin to hold and to wear if you choose to engage. Thank you for your attention. Blessed be. Our closing song today is number 119 in the great hymnal. Once to every soul and nation. Let's just sing the first brush since we're running over a little bit.